Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a bright spring morning here in the capital is Lisa Cowley. Lisa is the CEO at Beacon, a health and social care charity based in the black country. Uh, Lisa, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Good morning. No problem at all. It's great to be here. It's wonderful having you with us as well, Lisa. Um, I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in late May 2021. And so we are still very much in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic and have been for the best part of 14 months. And given that you are a charitable organisation that works within that health and social care sector that's very much been on the front line throughout all of this, um, I'd be interested to understand to what extent all of this has affected you and your operations? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been a very difficult time for everybody, but working in the health and social care sector, it's been traumatic and chaotic, but also very rewarding at times. So we are a health and social care service that support people impacted by sight loss and other long-term conditions. Um, And we do that in a range of ways um, from kind of practical support around how they can manage their conditions um, to social activities and support getting back into employment and skills. Um, But probably one of the most significantly impacted areas is we are a frontline social care provider. So we have um, a facility at our main centre where there are 71 apartments where we support people and we also support people in their own homes. Obviously, being in health and social care, we we began our planning around the impact that that COVID may have early in in 2020. Um, And we undertook an exercise where we trained staff across the organisation to support those key areas. So the frontline roles that that people needed our support in order to to continue to live within their own homes and be independent. Um, We finished that at 12.30 on a Friday in late March and at 4.30 we had confirmation that um, one of the people that we cared for who'd been in hospital had indeed tested positive for COVID-19, which meant that a third of our staff were categorised as a contact because at that point we were not provided with any PPE um, or protection measures. Um, So we had to step into the front line. So myself and a, a number of other staff worked on that front line um, I in fact lived at the centre on a camp bed for a number of weeks so that I could support the frontline team while leading the organisation, mainly in the evenings and, and at night. Um, and I think that was, you know, an extremely difficult time. We had um, a number of people that we cared for that, that got COVID. We had staff that got COVID, uh, volunteers. We, we sadly lost members of, of our Beacon family. We view our organisation as a family. Um and that was very difficult for people. Um, but we're also very optimistic and I think it provided us with opportunities to do different things and learn new things. And from my point of view, I got to literally work alongside some of the teams that I, I knew very well, but 
got to know so much better and got to spend time with some of our residents that I wouldn't normally manage to spend that amount of time with. So I think even in these really difficult and, and traumatic times, there's, there's always a, a positive message you can bring from it. And I think being in a leadership role, um, I've always felt that to lead, you need to understand your organisation. And it gave me a huge opportunity to do that. Um, and it also gave an opportunity to raise awareness of some of the challenges we face every day. Um, with more senior leaders, I've had statements read at the Health and Social Care Select Committee. Um, I've fed into national reviews about the health and well-being of staff that work within the health and social care sector. Um, we've fed into national work in relation to the accessibility of healthcare for people, especially those that are impacted by sight loss. Um, and I think there's been a real transition um, and a recognition of the impact that the social care sector and specifically the voluntary sector has had during this time it's really been a lifeline for people. I think what this pandemic certainly has done is it's raised awareness among the general public of just the scale of the lingering problems there are in the health and social care sector and there's been so much goodwill toward those frontline workers those care workers that have been sort of working on the front lines throughout this pandemic. We've seen people taking to their doorsteps on a Thursday night and clapping for those carers on numerous occasions. And with that sort of momentum growing there, do you think that this can be used as a conduit for the change that the sector needs in the future? I really hope so. You know, I think um, people will have seen the white paper that's come out and the views about looking at much more integrated care systems. And I think you know, the reality is we don't stop. We're not a different person when we're in hospital or when we're in a GP surgery or when we're in our own home, when we're with our friends and family or when we're having social care. You know, and we've got to be able to integrate that support um, and really communicate and work as one integrated team to help people um, and ensure that they can continue to live their life, whether that they need support due to their age, due to conditions, due to a long-term or a short-term illness, and it shouldn't impact on their ability to be recognised as a part of society. And I think social care has often been that kind of hidden part. Um, and actually, social care is not just about older adults, and it's not just about people that are in care homes. You know, there are lots of people of all ages that require support, um, and there are n far more people that are supported within their their own home. Um, or within independent living and are within care home facilities. Um, and I think one of the things that's been really positive, and, and I think that's probably something that will come from this podcast, is that you know I'm always looking for those positives, is that recognition not just from the general public, but from partners across all sectors of the benefit of an effective social care system. And that actually that you know, it has been struggling. It's been struggling from a funding perspective. It's been struggling from a support perspective and a and a kudos. You know, I think, you know, people now recognise that caring is a profession. Um, and I said to, you know, a lot of my team, it, it is a calling. It is something that not everybody can do um, and that it deserves respect. And, and quite often when people were being taken into hospital or required additional support from clinical services you know it was our care team that know those people far better than anybody else you know and were able to really support 
and ensure that they weren't in hospital for as long, um, any longer than they needed to be and that they got the right care. Um, and I really hope that that momentum is pushed forward at a political level, but also at a societal level and that we recognise that that's something that you know we don't want um, to forget that we're all going to at some point need support, whether that's healthcare support or social care support, um, and that we need to be pushing that agenda as much as possible. I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a great deal more respect for care as a profession now. It's not seen by so many people as a so-called unskilled industry. And it's actually staggering, isn't it? The fact that we may well be coming out of this pandemic. And given that care workers have been so pivotal in helping society through this, we could be looking at a skills shortfall potentially in the industry in future that we're going to have to grapple with. Yes, definitely. I mean, recruitment and retention has always been a challenge within the social care sector and within the healthcare sector. And I think um, there's been quite a lot in the press about specifically within healthcare where there's been a number of people leaving because they have felt that they they couldn't do what they've done over the last 14 months um, again. I think within the social care sector, we've been really lucky that we've we've retained our team and we've grown our team um, and that's not just our team on the front line because it isn't just those people that are there um, providing the care and being the face of the organisation it, it, it's also all of the other staff in the background you know finance admin um, people that are answering the phones all of those people that have been absolutely essential um, and people have really seen that this is a way in which they can grow and develop and they've been trusted more and they've grown more and, and they've really kind of found that, that passion, um, which to me is really positive. And I think opportunities to give people a chance to see if it's something for them. So as, as a charity, we've always supported people by providing placements and, and volunteer opportunities. And that's something that we will you know, continue to do and continue to work with colleges and universities to provide people the opportunity to see that this is a career route it's not just a job and it's it's something that can give you so much more and I think for my team you know it has been a a really difficult time and a a really traumatic time but I think the fact that they feel that they've gained more respect within the organisation because people have understood more what they've done and and also externally, it has been really beneficial and has helped them through those difficult times. But I think we are going to see um, over the next six to 12 months lots of staff wellbeing issues that we have to support people with. Mm. Um, you know, and it's something that you know I feel myself, you know, I've been impacted by the things that we've been through. You know, you would never think as a leader that you're having to write workforce contingency plans about potentially losing 10% of your workforce, not through redundancy or um, people leaving, but through the fact that they may be unable to work due to illness. You know, that's a, a very sobering thing to have to do. Um, and I think we're now in a position where it's about moving forward, but recognising that there are going to be emotional impacts because of that. And, and I was speaking to a colleague in, in Scotland um, and he said, you know, we're, we're waiting for a tsunami of grief because the reality is that we care about all of the people that we look after um, and they are members of our family and we've sadly lost them and there's been, as many people know, you know, it's not been a normal grieving process and we would not, not be used to losing as many people as we have. 
and there will be an impact. And, and we saw it a little bit last year when there was easing of the lockdown over the summer when things began to feel easier. It almost gave individuals, not just staff, but volunteers and family members and you know people that we support who'd lost friends um, that time to reflect. And that was when you saw it. And I think that's going to be a, a key thing that, we need to focus on as an organisation and, and as a society in how we're supporting people through those emotional periods. Certainly, it does seem that there is going to be a lingering mental health crisis of sorts because of the trauma that this um, pandemic has brought about. I think that's absolutely right. Um, but I do sort of on a more positive note, certainly agree with what you mentioned before in that people have been bringing the best out in themselves, both within their work and within their communities. And that's been something that's been so, so important uh, throughout this. And just reflecting on that, um, would you say that for the experience that you've had personally over the uh, the last 14 months, Lisa, that you've sort of come out of the pandemic so far as a stronger leader for the experiences that you have had? I think definitely. I think when you're in a leadership role, um, you learn something new every day. And I think, you know, to have managed to lead an organisation, um, especially a health and social care organisation through this period, I've, I've learned a huge amount. You know, I've, I've learned about how you navigate huge volumes of government guidance um, but equally those networks that you create I couldn't have done this on my own I have an absolutely fantastic leadership team who support me and I'm extremely lucky to have a very committed team of trustees um, but it's also the wider networks you know the health and social care networks where we've come together as leaders to share interpretation share guidance discuss where we felt that we've been concerned about something or where have we learned how to do something or a connection Um, and those people can often say it can be a very lonely place as a chief exec but I've never found it to be that because I've always reached out to people within my organisation and beyond and and created those networks where I can support other people and they can support me Um, and I think my mantra as a leader has always been about being open and honest and that I expect my team to be open and honest with me and I'll be open and honest with them. And and I think that was one of the things that, that really got us through those, those first few months where it was extremely chaotic and we didn't have accurate guidance. Nobody really understood this this virus or how it was managed. And, you know, I was really open and honest with the team that, that we didn't know. I didn't know whether... Um, the guidance was going to change. We didn't have, you know, there was no testing really at that point. So we didn't know whether any of us had COVID and were asymptomatic. We didn't know whether the PPE that we had was effective or not at that point or whether we had enough PPE, you know, and I was very honest with them. Um, And I think, you know, that reinforced that respect that they knew that I was there alongside with them and that I wasn't going to, lead them up the garden path I was always going to be honest with them and I would be there with them and and I would support them through that and I think that really stood us in good stead because even when things have been extremely difficult and there's been challenges that we've faced due to COVID or due to the financial impact on the organisation there's been a huge amount of trust and I think that's ultimately the organisations that have been successful are the ones that where where staff and volunteers and beneficiaries trust the leadership team and I think you know we have an opportunity a model where and you know 
I can any of the staff can talk to me, we can have those conversations, they can question and challenge and, and they know that I'll tell them the truth and that if I don't have the answer, um, I won't make one up. And I think that's something that in these times it's really difficult as a leader to be saying to teams, well, I don't know and we don't have an answer and I can't promise that you're going to be safe when you come to work because we just don't understand this virus. By actually being authentic and by being honest, you build that respect and, and people come with you and you build um, a team. I think that's absolutely right. I think transparency within leadership is one of the hallmarks of the uh, the role. I think that's very, very correct. And um, we talked um, a little bit already about what the legacy of COVID is likely to bring for the wider social care sector at large. But just before we do wrap things up, Lisa, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time, I would like to focus on sort of yourself and Beacon more specifically over the next 12 months and what it is that you see happening within your organisation next and where it is that you ultimately would like to be this time next year when hopefully we have moved out of that period where the pandemic is in immediate and present danger. Well, I think as for all charities, it's been an extremely difficult time financially. Um, we're very lucky that we have been really well supported by our local communities and we and we have secured some grant funding. I think all charities feel that financially the next 12 to 24 months are going to be difficult because there were quite a number of, of emergency grant funding pops. Um, whether those are going to exist and, and whether kind of traditional um, community-based fundraising, so face-to-face activities w- will continue and will build back up to, to other levels. So financial stability is, is what I'm hoping we'll be able to achieve over the next 12 to 24 months and continuing to learn about where those different income routes will come. Um, I think for me as a leader, it's about, um, as we mentioned earlier, how, how we capitalise on the positives around raising that awareness of the role of the social care sector and specifically the role of the voluntary sector in terms of supporting people um, and being recognised as a true equal partner and I think that that is um, very much about being open about strengths within the sector and the, and the areas where there are weaknesses so that we can collaborate with others to build those um, and continue to have that partnership approach. Partnerships has always been something that uh, I've been involved with within my career and I think it's essential now going forward we we need to create an ecosystem um, rather than organisations that operate in silos and I think COVID has really demonstrated that that, that no one organisation um, can achieve things on their own um, so definitely more collaboration and I think that feeds into the fact that if, if we collaborate and, and focus on our areas of strength it enables us to become more financially stable because we're able to draw on others resources and skills to achieve more certainly is a key time coming up for the industry isn't it and uh, I have to say Lisa it's been a real real pleasure welcoming you onto the program today and a real eye-opener for myself and the listeners as to what's been going on within the industry and I think as we start to see sort of the future of the sector taking shape as we hopefully move out of the sort of main phase of the pandemic it would be good to perhaps catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are beginning to change. That would be absolutely great and it's you know it's been a pleasure and it's lovely to do it on a beautiful sunny morning, which uh, always makes us feel more positive.
It does, doesn't it? It certainly made a change um, from the weather that we've seen over the last few weeks as well, which has certainly epitomised the mood over the last 14 months, I think. Um, thank you again, Lisa, for your time and uh, joining us today. And um, since we're not quite out of the woods with this yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Thanks very much. And it was a pleasure for me to be speaking to Lisa Cowley this morning, the CEO at health and social care charity Beacon. Um, next upon the programme today, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. That interview will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, 
I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, uh, 
chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not Uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. <laughs> thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.